Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 As many of you know, I'm trained as a lawyer. About the only thing from my legal training that has survived is my determination to represent my client as well as I can. And that means that you don't go criticizing your client in public. My client, in each case, is the author of whatever text we're looking at. And so I, I make it a point not to be critical of uh, the authors unless it's absolutely necessary. It's a little bit impolite, in a way, to invite yourself into the feast and then criticize it for not being quite up to your expectation. Uh, but I do want to say a mildly critical word or two about Eliot's uh, handling of some of the material. So that's something we don't do here very often. And the second thing that we don't do here very often, or I don't know if we've ever done it, is to have a little pop quiz. So I thought we would start uh, today with a little pop quiz. You don't have to worry, though. It's a, it's a true or false quiz. So the first thing I'm going to do is read to you a passage from Eliot's prose writings and get your reaction to it. He says, It is in Christianity that our arts have developed it is in Christianity that the laws of Europe have until recently been rooted. It is against the background of Christianity that all our thought has significance. An individual European may not believe that the Christian faith is true, and yet what he says and makes and does will all spring out of his heritage of Christian culture and depend upon that culture for its meaning. Only a Christian culture could have produced a Voltaire or a Nietzsche. I do not believe that the culture of Europe could survive the complete disappearance of Christian faith. And I am convinced of that not merely because I am myself a Christian, but as a student of social biology. If Christianity goes, the whole of our culture goes. Then you must start painfully again. And you cannot put on a new culture ready-made. You must wait for the grass to grow, to feed the sheep, to give the wool, out of which your new coat will be made. You must pass through many centuries of barbarism. We should not live to see the new culture, nor would our great-great-great-grandchildren. And if we did, not one of us would be happy in it. In defending Christianity as in anything else, the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. So here's question two of our quiz. This is a quotation from John McKenzie, the distinguished Roman Catholic biblical scholar that I've quoted from recently. McKenzie says, There is a deadly and irreconcilable opposition between Western civilization and Christianity. One of them must destroy the other. Insofar as the Roman Catholic Church, McKinsey's writing as a Roman Catholic it apply, could apply to all of the uh, Christian um, churches. Insofar as the Roman Catholic Church has become identified with the fabric of Western civilization, it will perish with that civilization. If the church were to lose its papacy, its hierarchy, its clergy, its vast collection of buildings, its stores of learning amassed over the centuries, even the text of its sacred books, which is to say, it's culture, what we think of as culture. If it were to lose all these things and had to face the world with nothing but the living presence of the risen Jesus and his living memory and its mission to proclaim the good news to all nations and peoples, it would be no less a church than the church of Peter and Paul. Perhaps it might be more of a church than it is now. True or false? I think they're both true. But I think Eliot's assessment situation is one that is more amenable to Caiaphas's logic than is the McKinsey estimation of saying. If you understand what I'm saying, Caiaphas, the high priest, who says it's when push comes to shove, it's better that we tolerate a minimal amount of sacrificial violence than that we lose the whole thing. So 
now I must say, Elliot has written an analysis of culture, and particularly Christian culture, which I think is of real importance to us. And I have only taken one passage out of some of these writings. His writing is very subtle on this subject. He speaks, for instance, of the need uh, of the church to not only offer an alternative to the ways of the world, but actually to interfere with the worldly ways, to put itself in the path of the uh, juggernaut of the worldly ways. So he's by no means can be reduced to this one passage I quote. But I, I quote it because it seems to me to lend itself to a kind of co-option by the powers be that the McKinsey piece may not. For instance, if you were, say, Secretary of State or, say, Archbishop of Philadelphia, which of the two quotations would you prefer? And you immediately see what I mean. Once Christianity has identified its historical work with the relative tolerance it receives from its host culture and with the relative, relative success it has achieved in shaping that culture, it might find itself presiding over the transmutation of the insight that, culture, that the culture of Europe could not survive the complete disappearance of Christian faith, to quote Eliot, the transmutation of that into the fear that the opposite might be true, that Christian faith might not survive the complete disappearance of European culture. A transition that has often in history ended with the church willing to say, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. So what I'm trying to do is go back to a place where we can detect a slippage and see that things begin to slide toward some kind of approval of the sacrificial cult, some kind of acceptance of Caiaphas's wisdom. It is, I think, Christianity's radical personalism, if I could use that term, which it receives directly from the life and mission of Jesus, that saves Christianity from the Caiaphas logic. It, the one notorious th fact about Jesus' ministry, as we have it in the Gospels, is that in each and every instance in which he confronted the choice between an institution or an abstraction on one hand and a person on the other, he chose the person. In the life and mission of Jesus as we have it, we have an insistence on recognizing the personal situation in each and every instance and never compromising that person for the sake of some larger institutional or abstract reality like nation or church or culture or any of the rest of it. And that is a very radical demand. It is always under the banner of one of those abstractions that the Caiaphas wisdom makes its appeal. So I want to go back and ask the question again, what is the church and what is the church for? I want to eventually bring that question today to another one, which is what happens when we go to church? To ask what the church is for is to take this larger sort of planetary, anthropological uh, view, and, and that's an appropriate question. But then we have this other question of more immediate to us and to our lives is what happens when one goes to church? That's the second question I want to ask is what is liturgy? And where does it fit into this thing we're trying to analyze? In every instance in the gospel where the issue was raised, Jesus rejected the sacrificial cult as either irrelevant or a hindrance to the living of a God-centered life. For instance, when Jesus is asked um, why he eats with sinners and tax collectors, see the word sinners and the word tax collector is an abstraction. He's eating with people. And his answer is, he quotes the prophet Hosea, he says, go and learn the meaning of the words, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's an absolutely brilliant insight into what lies behind the question. What lies behind the question is the determination 
to keep certain people or classes of people in reserve as the potential pharmacos of victimization to restore and define what legitimate culture is. So Jesus sees in the question the larger issue, and he says, go and learn the meaning of the words. I require mercy and not sacrifice. So in it, I use that just as one instance, and there are many others in the gospel, of the, of the situation in which Jesus' radical personalism always rejected the sacrificial cult as irrelevant or a hindrance to, to the living of God-centered life. However, as the church formed itself early on, it began to adopt sacrificial language in its self-definition. And this has been haunting the church ever since. Let me quote a, a favorite passage of mine from G.K. Chesterton. He says, The church could not afford to swerve a hair's breadth on some things. Once let one idea become less powerful, and some other idea would become too powerful. It was no flock of sheep the Christian shepherd was leading, but a herd of bulls and tigers, of terrible ideals and devouring doctrines each one of them strong enough to turn to a false religion and lay waste the world. If some small mistake were made in doctrine, huge blunders might be made in human happiness. Well, it's just that that happened in a way. The idea that was allowed to become less powerful was the idea that Jesus suggested when he quoted Hosea, that God prefers mercy and not sacrifice. And the idea that became all too powerful was the sacrificial one that began to insinuate itself into the early Christian understanding of the church. So slowly the early church allowed the most powerful religious habit inherited from both the Hebrew and Greek environment, that is to say the sacrificial practice, to re-insinuate itself into the formative processes of the Christian proclamation bringing with it its language, its liturgical forms, and its theological horizons. And its language, liturgical forms, and theological horizons were those of cultic religion. It is, as I've said many times, much closer to the truth to say that Jesus came to end religion than that he came to start a new one. But asking people 2,000 years ago to imagine a religious life without a sacrificial dimension was like asking people in our time to imagine a religious life without an ethical dimension. It was, it was unimaginable. And the result was a sacrificial interpretation of the passion. Jesus was a sacrifice demanded by an angry God to spare mankind the vengeance that would befall had that sacrifice not been made. Here's what René Girard says about the sacrificial interpretation. Thanks to the sacrificial reading of the gospel story and particularly of the Passion, thanks to the sacrificial reading, it has become possible for what we call Christendom to exist for 15 or 20 centuries. That is to say, a culture has existed that is based, like all cultures, at least up to a certain point, on the mythological forms engender, engendered by the founding mechanism. And the founding mechanism is the sacrificial uh, victimization. Mankind relies upon a misunderstanding of the text that explicitly reveals the founding mechanism to reestablish cultural forms which remain sacrificial and to engender a society that, by virtue of this misunderstanding, takes its place in the sequence of all other culture, still clinging to the sacrificial vision that the gospel rejects. Now, what does that have to do with T.S. Eliot? Well, I can tell you right now, very little, and so we can breathe uh, a lot easier. But it does have a little bit to do with Eliot, and I just want to mention it before we go on with our, with our celebration of Eliot's absolutely masterful contribution to the to our understanding of who we are and where we are. And uh, there are no regrets for that. But there are a couple of instances I just want to point out in which uh, Eliot, writing in 1935, let's uh, make it clear, 
uh, adopted some of the same language. It just needs to point it out in passing. So there are two things I want to point out about the text in front of us, Murder in Cathedral. Two elements of it that are problematic, that are of concern for this issue that I've just raised. One is out-and-out sacrificial language. Several instances of it in the play. One of the most obvious ones is in the Christmas sermon with which we begin today's text. In that sermon, Thomas says, For whenever Mass is said, we reenact the passion death of our Lord. And on this Christmas day, we do this in celebration of his birth, so that at the same time we rejoice in his coming for the salvation of men and offer again to God his body and blood in sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Well, that's a very familiar proclamation of what's happening at the altar. It's so familiar that we continue to refer to it as an altar rather than as a table rather than as the table of the Last Supper. And so you see, it's that this language is part and parcel of a whole sacrificial reading into which Christianity has tended to slide. But if Jesus was a sacrifice that saved us, then Caiaphas was right. Let me now raise the second concern. The question of defilement the language of defilement in this text, which is a little more subtle because it doesn't immediately set off alarms about the sacrificial interpretation. But I'd like to take that for a minute. I, I realize that this borders on being dry and dull, but I, I want to take that issue for a minute. The language of defilement occurs almost exclusively in the choruses, incantations in this play. And when we get to those, I want to go through them as they are and feel them, and I don't want to go off on some tangent and analyze this and that. So before we get to them, I just want to take this issue of, the, of defilement language in the choruses uh, that Elias has written. Anthropologically, we come to consciousness with a sense that something is wrong. I think of this little cartoon that I have in my cartoon collection which shows the, the mother hen scowling down at the little baby chick that has just pecked out of its shell. And the mother hen says, now look what you've done. And that's what it's like to come to consciousness. Some have said consciousness is a criminal act. It leaves one with the sense that somehow something is wrong. Paul Ricoeur, who has written a very complex and, and very scholarly uh, analysis of the sense of fault begins with the analysis of the experience of defilement. And he says that's at the very basis of our sense of fault. He says, the dread of the impure and rites of purification are in the background of all our feelings and all our behavior relating to fault. And the dread of defilement sets off a kind of panic in the most primitive setting. And that panic is a kind of loose cannon on the deck. Somehow the impure has come in and defiled this situation. And the panic has to do with what comes with the sense of defilement. Ricoeur says, the origin of that dread is the primordial connection of vengeance with defilement. Those who are defiled will invite the vengeance of one who will not tolerate defilement. So something is wrong and somebody's got to pay. In the primitive setting, that's what it is. Ricoeur has, when he's writing this book at least, has not read René Girard, but he says... Quote, with defilement we enter into the reign of terror because somehow we have to get rid of that polluting element lest we all suffer the vengeance of the deity that will not tolerate such defilement. You can already hear Caiaphas's voice in there, you see. The whole thing. The presence of defilement in our experience of fault, says Ricoeur, has not simply been left behind, but has been retained. 
and perhaps conceals something that cannot be left behind, which survives, Ricoeur says, through a thousand mutations. Our sense that somehow things, something pure has been defiled. Ricoeur goes on, this is why the primitive dread deserves to be interrogated as our oldest memory. Now this is very helpful when we come to Eliot's play, because we in Eliot's play are at anthropological square one with the chorus. The chorus is coming up out of unconsciousness. And the first thing they feel is defiled. And then the terror of it. So he says, we, the primitive dread defilement deserves to be interrogated as our oldest memory. Well, if we were going to interrogate it, we couldn't interrogate it with a better text than the passages that Eliot has written for the chorus of this play. As the chorus stirs from its primordial slumber, its experiences that something is defiled. And this experience is the most primitive motivation for, this, for the cultic religion. For the sacrificial cult. But we are the chorus. That's why the chorus is of value to us. Because the chorus represents the crisis in the collective psyche in the world today. Ricoeur goes on to say that at a higher level of the consciousness of evil, the primordial and primitive dread of defilement will eventually become the fear of not being able to love anymore. Now, when he says that, he takes us all the way to the other end of the spectrum. That is to say, what starts in the most primitive situation as a fear of defilement that sets loose a reign of terror and a panic, in the most sublime experience of that same emotion, it is the fear of not being able to love enough. If the dread of defilement leads to the primordial fear of vengeance and to the reign of terror, Ricoeur says, quote, the fear of not loving enough is the purest and worst of fears. It is the fear that saints know. So that not only does this play present us with the chorus at one end of the anthropological spectrum and Thomas more or less at the other, it also invites us to see the historical journey of the church as being the journey from one to the other. The spiritual maturation that begins with the fear of defilement and the cultic sacrificial response to that fear and moves gradually toward the supreme estimation of what's wrong, that there is insufficient love and the church's sacramental response to that concern. So the fear of defilement gives rise to the whole Levitical cult, to use the Hebrew tradition, the whole preoccupation and, and absorption with apotropaic rites and rules and regulations and, and the sacrificial liturgy and the pharisaical mind that always wants to make sure that the pure is separated from the impure and the sacred from the profane and the righteous from the sinners, and so on and so forth, and the sacrificial reenactments that bring culture back together again. In other words, the fear of defilement is motivated by a fear of contamination, a fear of contact. The fear of not loving enough gives rise to the determination to forgive, to reconcile, to embrace, to bring together. It is the fear not of contamination, but of alienation. It is the fear not of contact, but of loss of contact. It's the furthest extreme of the, from, in this sense of what's wrong with the world. In writing the lines for Thomas, Eliot was taking too much, I think, of his insight into the situation from the kind of doctrine about the passion that, that I just tried to call into question. Now, there's some wonderful things that Thomas says. Don't get me wrong. But I think the real value of this play is in what the chorus says to yeah. us. Because when he writes those lines, Eliot is pure poet. One asks the question, what is the church? And then asks the question, what is liturgy? I want to go back to what the third priest said. that We talked about it last week. The third priest said, let the wheel turn. For ill or good, let the wheel turn. 
For who knows the end of good or evil until the grinders cease and the doors shall be shut in the street and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. And I offered an interpretation of that and the lines have haunted me and I, I'm, I, I keep going back to them. So I spent a little time this week trying to find their origins. And as best as I can determine, they are these. Uh, the oldest is in Jeremiah chapter 25 where Yahweh says through Jeremiah, I will put an end for them to the shouts of rejoicing and mirth, to the voices of the bridegroom and bride, to the sound of the millstone, and to the light of the lamp. That same insight is taken up and referred to, not in an explicit quote, but clearly adapted into chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, which says this, Never again in you, Babylon, will be heard the song of harpist and minstrels, the music of flute and trumpet. Never again will craftsmen of every skill be found or the sound of the mill be heard. Never again will shine the light of the lamp. Never again will be heard the voices of bridegroom and bride. Your traitors were the princes of the earth. All the nations were under your spell. Now, book of Revelation says the moment comes when Babylon will be deprived of all of that, all of the uh, cultural accoutrements. It doesn't really matter that much whether Babylon is Rome or Jerusalem or whatever. Babylon really is what I've called history. It's the paradigm at the basis of history. Because at the end of that passage, it says, all the nations were under your spell, Babylon. All the nations were under your spell. Right after it says, all the music will stop, all the nations were under your spell, the next phrase is, in Babylon, you in her, it says, but it means in Babylon, in Babylon, you will find the blood of prophets and saints and all the blood that was ever shed on earth. When will you find it? When the music ceases when all of the cultural apparatus stops, when all of the distractions, that's Eliot's word for it in a way, he talks about the distractions, when all of the cultural distractions and cultural and the mythologizations, all the theme music, all the soundtracks, all of those things that, that interpret the experience almost before you've had it, when all of that ceases, then you will see the blood of all the prophets shed since the world began. So to combine Eliot and the book of Revelation for a minute, the daughters of music supply the cultural ambience that keeps everyone from noticing the blood of the prophets and saints and all the blood that was ever shed on earth. By dominating the cognitive and emotional environment with its mythology and the physical environment with its technology, the cult let's call it what John of Patmos calls it, Babylon, will control our experience. It will profit from the spread of mimetic desire, and to prevent the worst consequences of the resulting mimetic rivalry, it will provide scapegoating rights and victimization spectacles that will channel pent-up aggressions toward victims marginal enough to the cultural enterprise to be expendable. The background music is the first and most compelling interpretation that we receive of what is going on around us. Now, I went into that because I want to ask the question about liturgy. And what I want to say is, we're living in one. We're in the midst of one. One's going on about us all the while. It's not formal. It's not even recognizable. But it has a liturgical feature to it, which is to say, it encourages us to recognize certain aspects of our experience, and it encourages us to overlook certain other aspects of our experience. It encourages us to see a situation in a certain way and not in another way. So we live, by the virtue of the fact we live in a culture, we live in a liturgical environment. And there are liturgical, if I'm using this word loosely, obviously, but there are liturgical forces that are working on us all the while that ready us to understand our experience in a particular way. If once we realize that we're living in a liturgical environment, how would we 
measure any particular liturgical influence. We say, well, is that having a positive influence on my living experience or a negative influence on, on my living experience? A rule of thumb might be, does it cause me to awaken and become more alert or does it cause me to become, to, to become less attentive? I, all these were thoughts going through my head before I picked up some, uh, Monday's Press Democrat. I read a column that was in the Press Democrat on Monday by Eleanor Randolph. She writes for the Washington Post, and she wrote a column that anybody in this room could have written. It was a column about the effect of television violence on our society. But there was something in it that, was, that struck me. She refers to an NBC survey that was done some time ago, which suggested that television violence doesn't really cause violence in the street, and to, to which she says, if you believe that, we have several interesting studies on smoking from the tobacco industry. <laughs> anyway, the, what interested me about her article was, was this, this quotation. Some researchers find that violence on television makes children fear the outside world. It also makes them less sensitive to the pain and suffering of others. The American Academy of Pediatrics in June 1985 said that, quote, repeated exposure to televised violence promotes a proclivity to violence and a passive response to its practice. Now, I was particularly keen on that last thing. You see, that may be the more dangerous feature of this whole thing. Remember, I quoted Yeats's poem about, from Meditation's Time of Civil War, in which he says two things are required for this terrible thing to occur, what he calls the grip of claw and the eye's complacency. It takes both. The grip of claw and the eye's complacency. Later on, that same poem, he says, eyes that rage has brightened, arms it has made lean, give place to an indifferent multitude, give place to brazen hawks. An indifferent multitude and brazen hawks. Well, what I'm suggesting is that is a liturgical experience using liturgy in its largest sense. That is to say, something that shapes my experience and the interpretation of my experience before I even have it something that, that uh, predetermines the kind of experience I'm going to have. And so we live in a liturgy. Well, if we live in one, why bother on Sunday morning to go for an hour and live in another one? Exactly that. Exactly that. What is the purpose of liturgy? What is the purpose of the ambient cultural liturgy? It is to uh, encourage a vision of the world that that cultural enterprise sponsors and prefers. And the purpose of a religious liturgy, Christian liturgy in this, in this instance, is to encourage us to inhabit another kind of cosmos. And that's what I think is the great value of Ellie's play. I think Ellie's play is a liturgical masterpiece. And so I'd like to and particularly the choral passages, and so I want to frame the whole question of liturgy before we turn to them. And to do so, I brought three quotes, uh, which I hope will set the tone for what the liturgy can and should be, perhaps. Uh, the first two are from authors I have quoted uh, recently because I've been reviewing some of their works. Eugene Peterson says this, During the act of worship, something has been happening to the worshipers. Minds are cleared. Perceptions come into focus. Spirits are renewed. Now the hearty person of the world peering into that environment would say, everybody's getting caught up in some delusion in there. Uh, Elliot has a passage, I wish I could remember it verbatim, where he says, in a world in flight from reality, the one who refuses to do so will look like a fugitive. So somebody peering over into that liturgical experience from the atmospheric one outside will say, well, they're getting all caught up in something. 
Well, here's what Langmead Casterly said. Now, in this essay, I've quoted from this essay before. He's writing an essay about the uh, existentialist philosopher uh, Gabriel Marcel. And he says, It is not always easy, I think, for Christians who have been born and raised in those areas of Christendom, accustomed to non-liturgical worship, to achieve any sympathetic understanding of all that the liturgy means to the best and most spiritually awakened Catholics, small c. The liturgical revival in the Catholic world is not just an archaeological revival, though it has and honors its archaeologists. Rather, it is a true and profound movement of the spirit that expresses itself through its prophets. It is in liturgy that such people savor the quality of the kingdom, and therefore in liturgy that they trace the authentic outlines of social order, and experience that special vision of the meaning of human existence which a Christian existentialism labors to articulate. The whole substance of Marcel's profound humanism may be identified with such intuitions as these. Like the call of Isaiah and not a few of the Psalms, this experience is essentially a vision which takes place during the performance of the liturgy, a vision whose liturgical context is in no way accidental for it is essentially a vision of what the liturgy truly is and means. And finally, I want to quote from Evelyn Underhill, who, I must say, committed some of these uh, venial sins with regard to uh, using sacrificial language herself. However, she's got some wonderful things to say. I'm particularly drawn to this observation because later on the chorus will come to identify themselves with the slimy things on the bottom of the sea in the same way that the ancient mariner had to identify with the creepy crawly things in the sea. So it's apropos to quote Evelyn Underhill. She says, Many a congregation, when it assembles in church, must look to the angels like a muddy, puddly shore at low tide, littered with every kind of rubbish and odds and ends, a distressing sort of spectacle, the dead sea urchins, and jellyfish, the paper and empty cans, and the nameless bits of rubbish. And then the tide of worship comes in, and it is all gone. Now that's a sort of an awkward and crude metaphor for what happens in a liturgical environment when suddenly one comes to inhabit another sense of what is real, than the one that the sponsoring culture is reinforcing all day long every day. The temptation of the high church is to perform the liturgy on the reservation provided by the host culture and to mute its challenge and to substitute for its prophetic mission an aesthetic experience. The temptation of the low church is to proclaim the word and fight the good fight and regard the liturgy as a piece of sentimentality which we may or may not have time for. But really and truly, it is the liturgy that is the radical experience for us. That's not to say that ones that really do that are easy to find. Uh, but Eliot has written one that can do that. I am going to spend most of my time on the chorus that follows the sermon, on the brief uh, liturgical events that follow the chorus, and then skip most of the dialogue between Thomas and the knights and the priests. But then we'll go on, kind of skip that, and go to the next chorus. Imagine the chorus as being the voice of the collective psyche. Remember, Eliot is taking the chorus from, from Greek tragedy, and in Greek tragedy, it was just about two or three steps removed from its most primitive situation. In its most primitive state, the chorus consisted of the sacrificial priesthood that encircled the altar and carried out the sacrificial murder. This is the same chorus because we're all one humanity and we're all awakening from that same event as they are. 
But what that event did is that it ensured the seasonal cycle. Remember that the sacrifice on the Dionysian altar made spring possible. So as long as the chorus can be the cultic priesthood surrounding the sacrificial altar and then participating in the victimization, it's contained in the natural cycle of things. And spring comes at the cost paid by the sacrificial victim, the dying god. Spring comes. So the chorus has its roots in that experience. And what we get in Eliot is the chorus who has had that experience awakening. And the first thing they discover is that, you see, Gerard makes the point that, that one cannot be conscious of the act of victimization and what it really means and have it work at the same time. It only works when we're unconscious of what we're doing. Consciousness of it compromises its efficacy. And so they are becoming conscious of it, and at the same time, they're realizing that something's gone wrong. The seasonal cycle has warped somehow. It's not working. And this is what I think this chorus is all about. Does the bird sing in the south? That's the moment at which you see in the dead of winter, the birds have gone south. But the singing in the south is a anticipation of a spring coming and the, and the uh, migration northward and the renewal of the world. See that kind of thing? Does the bird sing in the south? And the answer is, only the seabird cries, driven inland by the storm. And it's a fabulous symbol of the chorus. The chorus is the choral voice of this play, the songbird of this play. And what they have done in the past is to sing that sacrificial hymn. And now they're being blown inland by the storm, which is, a, in Eliot, as in many other literatures, the sea is the place of the unconscious and the land is the place of consciousness. And we have the seabirds being blown inland by the storm. That's, a, that's what's happening to the chorus and to all of us to the extent that we have, have and do sing the choral song. The chorus is being blown inland by the storm forced to become conscious. What sign of the spring of the year? Only the death of the old. Not a stir, not a shoot, not a breath. Do the days begin to lengthen? Longer and darker the day. Shorter and colder the night. still and stifling the air. But a wind is stored up in the east. There is that sense of something, but it's not in the regular cycle of things. There is a wind stored up in the east. There's this kind of intuition of some other thing that may break in on this situation, but it's not in that ordinary cyclical thing. The starved crow sits in the field attentive. And in the wood the owl rehearses the hollow note of death. What signs of a bitter spring? The wind stored up in the east. See, it's a bitter spring. That wind stored up in the east is going to have a bitter spring. April is the cruelest month. See, a springtime that comes not from a further delusion, not from a re-entry into the delusional cycle, but to an awakening to what we have done. Between Christmas and Easter, what work shall be done? The plowman shall go out in March and turn the same earth as he turned before. The birds shall sing the same song. When the leaf is out on the tree, when the elder and may burst over the stream, and the air is clear and high, and voices trill at windows and children tumble in front of the door, what work shall have been done? Without anybody noticing. What wrong 
shall the bird's song cover, the green tree cover? What wrong shall the fresh earth cover? You see what they're just coming to consciousness of the sacrificial act that that the ancient springtime requires. But they're beginning to realize that there is a wrong that is covered up somehow in this springtime ritual. And the third priest brings it to the point. The critical moment is always now and here. Even now, in sordid particular, the eternal design may appear. The eternal design is the victimization cult around which the ancient chorus has always been circling. But now the chorus is going to have to start to come awake. We have smelt them, the death bringers. Senses are quickened by subtle foreboding. Now remember, it's the senses that are coming alive. Suddenly, they are waking up in all of their senses. Do you remember when the, when the priests were announcing the feast of uh, John the Apostle? Uh, they said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. The senses have to be awakened first to what is real before the proclamation, and that's what's happening to the chorus. Senses are quickened by subtle forebodings. I have heard fluting in the nighttime, fluting in owls, have seen at noon scaly wings slanting over, huge and ridiculous. I've heard all this and seen all this before. I have tasted the savor of putrid flesh in the spoon. I have felt the heaving of earth at nightfall, restless, absurd. I have heard laughter in the noises of beasts that make strange noises, Jackal, jackass, jackdaw, the scurrying noise of mouse in Jerboa, the laugh of the loon, the lunatic bird. I have seen gray necks twisting, rat tails twining in the thick light of dawn. I have smelt corruption in the dish, incense in the latrine, sewer in the incense, the smell of sweet soap in the wood path, a hellish sweet scent in the wood path while the ground heaved. Now, just before we go on, you see, that is, that's, that's the mythologization that has come in to cover it up. I have smelt corruption in the dish, incense in the latrine, the sewer in the incense, the smell of sweet soap in the wood path. In other words, all along, I have smelled not only the mythological odors that are provided, but I've also smelled the stench underneath it. But I have ignored the latter in favor of the former. You see, that's what the recognition is. I have seen rings of light coiling downwards, descending to the horror of the ape, have I not known, not known what was coming to be? That's the really the crisis point in this chorus. Suddenly, they go through all of these really visceral feelings, the senses awakening. I have seen, I have felt, I have touched, I have tasted, I have smelled all of this. And then finally, the chorus asks itself, have I not known, not known what was coming to be? It was here, in the kitchen, in the passage, in the mews, in the barn, in the byre, in the marketplace, in our veins, our bowels, our skulls, as well, as well as in the plottings of potentates, as well as in the consultation of powers, 
What is woven on the loom of fate, what is woven in the councils of princes, is woven also in our veins, our brains, is woven like a pattern of living worms in the guts of the women of Canterbury. I have smelt them, the death bringers. I have consented, Lord Archbishop, have consented, am torn away, subdued, violated, united to the spiritual flesh of nature, mastered by the animal powers of spirit, dominated by the lust for, of self-demolition, by the final utter, uttermost death of spirit, by the final ecstasy of waste and shame. O Lord Archbishop, O Thomas Archbishop, forgive us. Forgive us. Pray for us that we may pray for you out of our shame. So this reaches this crescendo of identification with this cult. We have always been circling the sacrificial altar. We have had our heads filled with the, with the music of the sacrificial cult. This is nothing new. What's new is that we are now seeing it for the first time. And all our senses are coming awake. We are coming up out of the narcotic swoon into a recognition of what we have been doing. And Thomas comes crashing in on that last line where they're asking forgiveness. And he says, peace. And be at peace with your thoughts and visions. These things had to come to you and you had to accept them. And Thomas goes on, this is your share of the eternal burden, the perpetual glory. You have to become witnesses instead of mere spectators. This is one moment, but know that another will pierce you with a sudden painful joy when the figure of God's purpose is made complete. You shall forget these things, toiling in the household, you shall remember them, droning by the fire, when age and forgetfulness sweeten memory, only like a dream that has often been told and often been changed in the telling. They will seem unreal. Humankind cannot bear much reality. See, this is the moment of, of epiphany for the chorus. And there'll be another one at the end of the play. It's a moment when suddenly they realize that they have conspired, they have been complicit in this cultic operation since the beginning of time. And at this moment, they are forced into the recognition of what it's all been. And Thomas says, and you know what? This moment, with all of its power for truth, will fade. And you will remember it through a glass darkly because humankind cannot bear much reality. 